technological glitches at the beginning of there but welcome it is friday april 21st 2023 welcome to raging chickens friday politics roundup yes this is kevin mahoney creator and founder of raging chicken each week we break down the good the bad and the ugly in state national politics and you can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month head on over to patreon.com slash rc press for all the details you can also help out this show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us that five-star review on whatever platform you listen. I'll leave a comment. Let folks know why you like the show. Little things like this help other people find the show and amplify the amazing folks that review or platform on this space. And yes, school board elections are coming, and we cannot let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly rooted, a truly community-rooted PAC. We invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, unmasking toxic organizations, injecting our community with right-wing extremism, and so much more. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. That's ragingchicken.levelfield.net. And on today's show, um, yeah, I think the theme for kind of coming up here is uh, some of you might have heard it in the uh, when I was trying to work out the tech glitches. Uh, this might be the theme for uh, uh, today. I'm glad the end of the world is working out well for someone. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, GOP House Leader Kevin McCarthy announced that his party's demands in the latest round of public hostage taking around the nation's debt ceiling. Yes, what are those demands? Well, McCarthy and House Republicans are calling for massive cuts to social programs, the elimination of student loan debt forgiveness plan, new work requirements for welfare recipients, cuts in funds for improving the IRS, who wants to repeal the green energy programs and incentives, and take back any unspent COVID funds. In other words, wants to hurt all of us, right? That's the goal. Hurt all of us and give more to that top fraction of our wealth-bearing billionaire kings. Crazy. Oh, God. And the tragedy of this week, of course, has been it seems that flooding our communities with guns and stoking fear, hate, and misinformation on conservative media is producing yet another new form of gun violence. This week, several young people were shot and some killed as they accidentally knocked on the wrong door or mistakenly got into the wrong car. This is the culture of vigilantism that the conservatives funded by the NRA and the gun industry have been grooming us for, for decades. It is, uh, it is frightening at this point. Uh, it's frightening and it's angering. Just to kind of brief thing, just so liberty, just, just, just this week, 
right? Or just just in a week at Liberty, Missouri, Ralph Yarrow, of course, a 16-year-old African-American kid who's going to pick up his sister, accidentally knocked at the wrong door. He was nearly killed, right? As a kind of Fox News and kind of right-wing media-infused kind of paranoia of uh, this kind of guy behind the door led him to uh, assume that his life was at risk because this little kid was there picking up his sister. And in Fort Edward, New York, uh, Kaylin Gillis, a 20-year-old white woman, was looking for a friend's house in the kind of rural area, mistakenly drove up the wrong driveway, right? At nighttime, she was shot and killed. In Elgin, Texas, two competitive cheerleaders, Heather Roth and Peyton Washington, were shot after mistakenly getting into the wrong car. They were just trying to, at the end of a long day, thought it was her car, got in. Oh, uh, I'm sorry, wrong car, got back in the other car. Guy got out of the car, started shooting. Roth suffered no, um, kind of grazing wounds, while Washington was spent the, um, was sent to the hospital in critical condition. There's more stories like this emerging now. It, it just it's uh, this is this is something indeed. This is something indeed. Um, God. This week, of course, we also saw that the uh, <laughs> God. There's so much to talk about this week. It's like you know whatever. Anyways, uh, this week we saw the PA Supreme Court angrily sanctions. Um, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. You want to leave this before the PA uh, the Supreme Court? I mean, kind of extended the kind of uh, that ban on uh, mifepristone. Uh, that the court working its way through courts until this Friday. They're supposed to kind of decide today about whether mesoprisone is going to be available, if the abortion pill is going to be available through the mail, um, you know, especially for women in those states that have effectively banned abortion. Right? That's going on this week. It's crazy. Let's see what else I got in here. Because, like, I, I just, there's no way I can get to all this stuff. Um, yeah, well, we're going to go with that. We're just going to start kind of talking in a minute because <laughs> this is just going to get crazy. Anyways, new reporting in Politico. According to new reporting in Politico, Rutgers University faculty unions are considering getting back on the picket line because the administration is dragging its feet in finalizing their framework deal that led unions to this, suspend their historic week-long strike. It was the first strike in, uh, by faculty in Rutgers' 257-year history. And apparently... Some of the details that had not been worked out, maybe it was strategic for the administration agreeing to uh, this kind of this kind of framework deal when they really didn't have the kind of best intentions. So we shall see. But the strike won historic victory on wages and job security for adjunct fa- faculty. At the same time, graduate student workers and workers at Rutgers Biomedical Health were still expressing concerns about the deal as several key issues about their working conditions remained to be hammered out. And it looks like uh, they're back on the picket lines now. They're not on strike, but they are doing informational pickets in front of the Board of Governors, in front of the Board of Governors' homes, um, basically saying, get this deal done, right? You agreed for this framework deal, get the deal done. And then also a PA here, after a gun store opened near several schools in Lower, Lower Marion, PA, the Township Board of Commissioners unanimously passed a new ordinance that limits where guns can be sold in the township, starting immediately. Yep, starting immediately, firearms businesses can no longer operate within a thousand feet of public schools. They cannot operate out of homes. They can only accommodate. Uh, they can only operate in commercially zoned areas, and they must follow new safety regulations. Commissioner Dan Bernheim, this is quoted in Emily Rizzo's excellent reporting in WHYY. Um, uh, Commissioner Dan Bernheim said that the new ordinance quote moves the needle ever so slightly, and that's the right thing to do. Recognizing full well, and there's another quote in this article was great too as well. It's like, you know, games get won by singles, baseball games that is. Um, it's not always you need a home run every single time. Nope, you can actually get the signals and win the game. Um, that's where they're at. 
Um, also, what oh was the other thing? Well, the Central Buck School Board meeting that took place last night, um, where the uh, there's supposedly um, internal investigation um, over the charges that they discriminate against LGBTQ, um, in particular transgender youth, um, kind of this lawsuit that's being, or this, not this lawsuit, this um, kind of complaint that's being brought forward by the ACLU. Well, they just basically, you know, cooked the books, basically, hiring this kind of anti-LGBT um, uh, law firm, right, religiously backed right-wing law firm to basically make a case for discrimination. Um, so they presented their quote-unquote findings to the board last night, and uh, I have to admit, I did not sit there and watch the entire board meeting. I needed a little kind of mental health break from all that stuff. Um, but I did follow a little bit um, what was happening on social media, and uh, from what I'm hearing from folks who were there, it was um, it was uh, quite a show. Let's believe it at that. Yes, and today, uh, oh God, on Wednesday, Wednesday night. I don't know if you saw this one. This is kind of more in the last call version of things, our area of things. Uh, a 600, an old kind of out of commit, or kind of basically dead right 650 pound satellite came crashing down to earth yep it was part of a uh, in part of the sahara desert right near the sudan and egypt border um they uh you know this is going to be more frequent as there's been some satellites have been up there for quite some time and a lot of them stopped functioning so guess what works guess who wins gravity wins gravity wins yes indeed and SpaceX's first test of the flight test flight of its massive Starship rocket. That's the one that NASA's commissioned to run back and forth to the moon um, to build their little moon bases. There was also this cool story. NASA wants to build now several moon bases, but that was also, the, in theory, the one that could then be used um, to kind of uh, go from the moon to the Mars. Well, anyways, that massive Starship rocket, the, the most powerful rocket that's ever been built or launched, well, exploded a few minutes after launch. Yep. More of the uh, Silicon Valley crash and burn stuff, but um, national administrators seem kind of encouraged by it, and um, there were kind of big boosterism after that. So hoping SpaceX learns a lot from um, um, from its failed test, and we we'll go from there. But um, it was something. At one point, it looked like the actual the whole rocket was going to come directly, like full on, like you know, <laughs> like full thrust back to Earth. At one point, I was like, "Whoa, this could be not good." But um, Anyways, for more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at, MP, um, at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your streams. And subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Go to the RickSmithShow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rock the House. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. Subscribe to their podcast and Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't heard, The Signal is a new podcast for the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, is hosted by the Beacon's editor in chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly. Um, twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on right wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril investigates guests, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. You can check it out at buckscountybeacon.podbean.com or you can get it wherever you get your podcast. And make sure you leave that review. Leave that review. Five stars. You know how it goes. And attention to all you gamers out there. The Game Inn is a Quaker Town-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest of all consoles, 
uh, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, balls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts when they get A's in the report cards. Can't beat it. Check them out on their Facebook page or follow them on Twitter at, at the game in with two N's. Got a question about a game? Look for something hard to get. Shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. Special shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at @songadayman. That's with two N's, at @songadayman on Twitter. We've got some great stuff coming up at Out to Coop Live this coming Monday. Um, that is April 24th. It's a special 1 p.m. live show. Now, of course, that'll be available later during our regular time, but uh, we worked it out for 1 p.m. on Monday, April 24th. I welcome Francois Furstenberg to the show. Francois is a professor of history at Johns Hopkins University. We'll be talking about his latest article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, Higher Ed's Grim, Soulless, Ed-Techified Future, Temple's Jason Wingard's Champion Skillification. Yep, he may be gone, but Skillification is still running rampant through higher ed. Um, It's going to be a great discussion. Really looking forward to that. And then on Monday, May 8th, yes, I'm still working on May 1st, still working on the May Day guest, but on Monday, May 8th, I welcome Mark Engler to the show. Engler is a Philly-based writer, author of This is an Uprising, How Nonviolent Revolt is Shaping the 21st Century. He's also a member of the editorial board of Dissent. And we're going to be talking about his latest article, Can Movements Keep Politicians from Inevitably Selling Out? That appeared in Dissent, The Forge, and Waging Nonviolence. I'm really looking forward to having Mark on the show, uh, re- read his stuff in my uh, in my classes. And uh, now we're going to get a chance to um, kind of dig into this article on the show. Look, everybody, if you want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches, homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Simply go to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight, and we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement, the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, welcome, everybody. Look, I didn't ramble on uh, kind of beyond my intro music. How about that? I know this is like one of these little um, these little things <laughs> that just kind of plagues me um, for what it's worth. Um, but, yeah, you know what? I wanna just want to – I'm going to throw this out to everybody um, for now. I, I'm really curious about this. Um, and, I, 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 you know, I, I, I'm really not sure how to handle this um, or what to do about it. And I'm curious what other people's thoughts are on this. So – I'm thinking about a lot about Twitter, right? Um, Twitter has become, um, I, as we all know, a, 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 it's just, it's falling apart. I mean, let, let's put the shit show side aside of it, like Elon Musk's kind of, you know, whatever, ego and all that kind of thing. I mean, but just even at a very practical level, not on an ideological level, on a very practical level, it's becoming less useful um, as a platform for um, getting information out, right? For sharing even the show, um, for uh, following folks. I mean, I, I've mentioned this before on the show that you know there's people who would regularly show up on my feed, which you know, I, I, frankly, some and sometimes I just assumed that they had left Twitter. You know, they got so fed up with it and left it went someplace else. But it turns out no, that they're actually still there. But I'm just it's not showing up on my feed anymore. Right. And I know that there's like, you know, people have, you know, have told me, well, you can go to that person and you could do this with it to make sure that they show up. No, and I get that. However, you know, you know, I've got like, I can't remember. I follow over, you know, over 
let me, let me pull it up for a second. I mean, I just, in terms of who I follow, you know, I follow what? Let's see. You know, I'm following like, you know, tw over 2,700 people, right? Um, you know, and there's over like, there's like 26, we have like over 2,600 following us, right? And so, you know, I'll, so, you know, I, I'm not going to go and spend the time, spend a day, right? Going and kind of going to every, every you know, 2,773 accounts and kind of like, okay, I want to make sure that if I, it's just not practical, right? I mean, why am I want to spend my time doing that stuff, right? But it does raise a question because that's the, I mean, it's, I know it's happening for, it's happening for, for us too as well. I mean, it's really interesting just to see, you know, anytime I look at analytics and stuff for the show or um, for other things, what I find is that um, <clears throat> the, uh, we get, we're actually, it's interesting because we're getting more, we're getting more viewers, more people tuning into the show and the podcast and stuff, but they're not coming from where they used to come from, right? We used to get quite a few people who were coming in from Twitter, and now it's just coming from, you know, different directions. And so I'm really thinking about, you know, how to best make sure that we get this show out, right? Um, that people get to see what we're doing. I mean, I'm looking at the guests that we've, we've had on, right? I mean, and uh, I'm just like, I think it's, we're freaking, we're rolling right now, <clears throat> right? And which is, which is fantastic and makes me just about that, you know, get to that much more or want that much more to even get more folks um, kind of tuned in here. I mean, it's stuff that interview we had with Alan Gratz, right, about his uh, about his book, Two Degrees, and how his book was basically um, because his book focused on ch climate change, Kutztown University School or the Kutztown Area School District um, pulled their programs. They didn't, you know, the right wing was not wanting their kids to read about climate change. We had him on this show and there was this event in Kutztown and that was a freaking awesome conversation, <clears throat> right? We had, you know, we had, you know, uh, Chris Ullery on this past week, right? Chris Ullery from the um, Bucks County Courier Times. After doing this, he, him and, um, uh, you know, he did this great investigative piece about looking at um, the ways that these right-wing law firms are influencing policy and school boards. I mean, that was freaking awesome discussion, you know? And it's like, uh, you know, it's all that going on. And I'm, I'm seeing what's happening on Twitter and it's it's got me concerned. And I've, I, you know, I've reached out to some other people that do some of this kind of work as well and just ask them about, you know, hey, you know, are you noticing this too as well? Or is it just kind of like, is it me, right? You know, because I'm first to think it's, I'm, I'm, it's my fault, <laughs> right? Um, and they're like, no, we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing the same thing. And it's like, you know, shows that are, you know, that are, have a much more national scope um, are, are seeing the same kind of an impact. And so I'm just curious. I mean, if y'all got thoughts about, you know, like, you know, how you deal with that on the one hand, and then, you know, are people leaving here and going elsewhere? And if you're going elsewhere, if you're, I mean, if you're going, not here, but if you're leaving Twitter, um, where are you going? Right. Cause you know, I, I set up a account on Mastodon and stuff like that. Mastodon's I find really interesting and I like it, but it's, it's a different animal. Uh, not, you know, I guess the bird, the, the woolly mammoth, whatever. It's just a different animal, right? It's, it, it functions differently. It's, it has a different sense of purposes and stuff. Um, it's not, you know, it, it yeah, it just operates differently. So, you know, the way that, you know, things work there, it's not like one big platform that kind of, you know, have a wide side, but you're working in these kind of small communities. And it's great for kind of building community and sharing stuff and all this stuff. Um, but, it, you know, when you're talking about, say, promoting a show or, you know, um, really following folks that you can kind of, um, you know, in one place, you know, tracking news and tracking particular stories, um, I just find it, it's, it's not really designed for that, right? And then, of course, there's Facebook, but then, you know, that's Facebook. 
Um, you know, I've been posting now more to Instagram, um, in part, you know, which is also Facebook, uh, or meta. Um, but you know, just, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking a lot about that stuff and I'm curious where people are and when, if they're finding other spaces, um, you know, social media spaces in particular, uh, where they're kind of enjoying and, uh, finding it, you know, thinking about this is a place you go once you leave Twitter, <laughs> right? Cause it just seems like, you know, Twitter is, is slowly going down. Um, but that's, you know, I, who knows, maybe I'll be completely wrong. We'll find out. We'll find out. Anyways, on to the show show. Um, show show. Um, so, yeah, so I had some kind of things I wanted to highlight this week and um, kind of dig into a little bit. And then um, with the recognition that there's no way we're going to get to everything that happened this week, because it's been it, it's it's been a really consequential week in in my in my mind in different ways than before. I mean, so much of what we've seen in the, um, in, you know, over the past couple of years, we see all these big national stories um, going on. And now I feel like we're. Um, there's still some like really important national stories, but they're, they're taking on a different shape um, than they have before. And so like lots of things happening in very different spaces. So, but I thought one of the most important one to look at, you know, was that you looking at what's happening with uh, this, um, you know, this debate over the, the, the debt ceiling. I mean, of course, the debt ceiling has been utilized as a uh, the national debt ceiling has been as used as as a tool of austerity, right? I mean, it's a tool of kind of gutting the public um, in favor of um, you know privatization, austerity, military budget, and so on. And um, it rests, of course, as we've talked about on the show before, on a false premise, right? Is that we have. You know, there's a, for example, there's a reason why that um, nobody has a big problem when um, the the Pentagon is calling for kind of a, a, a significant increase in its budget, right? A matter of fact, in the last in the last uh, in the last budget, right, that went through, the military asked for the Pentagon asked for you know a particular number. And, you know, even like the Biden administration and then the and the Congress kind of gave them more than they asked for. Right. And and this is not talking about the, the specific good or bad or whatever about military funding, but it's to say that they, they know they can just spend that money. Right. They know that they're going to kind of, you know, continue to fund the military because they're making it a priority. Right. And they also I think most of them know that deep down that the national debt for the most part doesn't mean a whole lot, right? In part because the United States has a fiat currency, right? The fact is, is that we produce our own money, right? The government is the one who gives it value, right? And that's why the government could, just like with student loans, could in one fell swoop basically saying, all right, we're going to cancel all those student loans that are owned by the government because ultimately it's just a, it's a figure on a ledger, Right now, there are. I don't want to get into all the weeds on this, but you know, there are. And matter of fact, I've I have been trying for a while. Right, I tried. I gave up after a while because I'm just like whatever. Just to reach out to people, and you know, there's just people that do this stuff on um, uh, modern monetary theory. They talk about this idea about fiat currency and so on. Um, and you know, that I have a kind of national profile and stuff. And there's this you know group of folks that you'd you'd always go to. But I was really hoping to find somebody in Pennsylvania. Right. Um, 
at one of the universities in Pennsylvania that does work on modern, modern monetary theory. And I kept on reaching out to try to find out different departments around, you know, academic departments around. I just, I couldn't find people that were, nobody got back to me. So I'm like, all right, forget it. I'm just going to whatever. But I would be useful to have somebody on at that point. And maybe I will this summer for that reason. Right. So that, so in other words, like the government, you know, the government can just print money to cover its debts. Right. Um, and there's limits on that. Like you can't just do it for the, you know, and just do it willy nilly. Right. You have to make sure that there's adequate kind of demand and there's um, the money is going for something that is going to be utilized. Um, so, for example, during the New Deal, when they spent all this money, right, government kind of want, you know, start just printed all this money, spent all this money. But they did things like they set up job, jobs programs. Right. They worked on the national parks. They did you know, built kind of, uh, they did electrification of rural areas. They did, you know, all these major projects that put people to work. So the money was actually being utilized, right? It was being sucked up by the economy and kind of the expanded um, agenda that was going on there. Um, so you can't just print it just for the sake of printing it. Otherwise you do end up with runaway inflation. But the idea that, you know, that the national um, budget works in the same way that a household budget works is just simply false. Right. It's also, you know, important to make the distinction between a state budget and a national budget. Right. Because a state budget, they do have limits. Right. The state like state or Commonwealth of Pennsylvania can't print its own money, decide its own value. No. Right. It has to operate within um, kind of a budget that exists. That is not true for the national um, at the national level. Right. So you have got that going on. So, you know, there's a reason a lot of these folks know is like, yeah, OK, we're going to say, you know, the, oh, my God, you know, we're we're in debt. We're in debt. We're crushed under the national debt. We're being crushed, you know. And meanwhile, like unemployment's at historic lows and people are kind of earning more than they were before and like things like this. Right. So like who's who's to be crushed under this debt? Right. It's all fear mongering. Right. Because they know they can they, they're going to they have no problem in writing kind of extensive checks to the Pentagon. Because ultimately, they know that money is going to get sucked up in the Pentagon's budget, right? The, you know, Pentagon's not going to just sit on money and just kind of like hoard it, right? They're going to spend it. They're going to buy you know new war machines and all that other kind of stuff, right? Um, and they, you know, Republicans for the most part, you know, really support that, and so do most Democrats. But when it comes to social programs, right? That because the right has has like you know ramped up and fired the flames on the kind of uh, social programs and culture war stuff. That um, that somehow the lessons that we do with the Pentagon we completely forget. We don't consider it a national priority to make sure that you know um, kids have food or you know people have medical care or that you know uh, that everyone has kind of access to schooling or you know go down the list, right? And so then it becomes an issue, and you know, and then because of the the turn that the Democratic Party took in the '90s, right, to be, try to kind of out Republican the Republicans, right, a lot of those folks bought into the same austerity measures, right, and so so here we are, right, and this is like you know it's just replaying once again, and and the and I think it's you know it's going to be interesting to see how this this plans out because like McCarthy, in order to kind of even pass this um, this version of the budget, right, or to, to get enough people on board to block, you know, the raising of the debt ceiling, he's got to get enough of his own party on on board. The problem is, is there's a lot of things that they want to cut that um, have been pretty, um, what's the word? Oh, yeah, popular, <laughs> right? They've been pretty popular um, and are going to have, if they insist um, to making the cuts that they want, um, it's, it, it is going to be pretty clearly on like 
on their backs, big sign, we did it, kick me, right? So for example, the one that's, I mean, we've talked about on this show quite a bit, right? So if you just take for starters, right? Take for starters, you're talking about, they, they want to, the Republicans, uh, according to their new proposal, right? Their hostage taking demands. Um, I'll just read this. This is from the Washington Post, right? The GOP plan officially aims to block Biden's forthcoming program to cancel thousands of dollars in college debt, a program long sought by cash-strapped students that the Supreme Court is also examining. Biden announced in August his plan to wipe out $10,000 in debt for Americans who earn less than $120,000 annually and $20,000 for lower-income borrowers. Republicans quickly blasted the financial relief as unfair, right? So therefore... Right. There's been a, there's been uh, one case that went before the Supreme Court that was got, you know, that was kind of dismissed. They, didn't, they said, nope. Um, there's another one that's coming up that's going to challenge this, too, as well. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, like estimated that plan would cost the government about four hundred billion dollars. Right. And so they're they're freaking out. Right. That, uh, you know, these uh, Republicans are freaking out, stoking the, you know, the, the, the fears that all oh, this is going to put us in debt. Right. Meanwhile. Right. I, I believe that most of them know this, right? Most of them know that when you cancel $10,000 in debt, right, for our student loan debt, right, um, that is actually a boost for the economy, right? Because I'll suddenly, like, say those, those folks who, say, for example, have, say, up to $10,000 worth in debt, right? Say that, say that they've been paying down their debt and they have $10,000 left, right? $10,000 left of that debt, and they're making these, like, hundreds of dollars of payments, like, every single month right? That $10,000 goes away. Suddenly my income is redirected elsewhere, right? There's been study after study that shows that, that college debt is one of the reasons why people are postponing buying homes or postponing starting a family. They're postponing kind of like moving out on their own, <laughs> right? There's postponing buying cars. I mean, a whole bunch of other things that would potential stimulus or even kind of participating in kind of different aspects of the party uh, of the, the country of starting new businesses, right? All that stuff. So this is actually kind of like a stimulus, right? That would actually go back into the economy, right? And that kind of stuff. But they want to get rid of that. And it's very hard to make a case for the Republican side that they didn't do it, that it just had to be done. I mean, people are educated enough on this now that they know that, no, it can be done, right? Just Republicans want to take it away, right? And it's very clear that's what they're going to do. The other things to hear, right? They want to repeal green energy programs, including some EV tax credits, Right. So that was part of this kind of Inflation Reduction Act. Right. The, you know, the kind of whatever the mansion kind of watered down compromise position of Build Back Better. Right. Um, Republicans hated it. Right. <clears throat> but, you know, if you're basically um, going to say you're going to repeal that, suddenly there's people out there. They're looking at kind of like, whoa, seeing that there's all these um, credits to go green. Right. Because, you know, look, people are looking for ways to actually make an impact to have, you know, saying, OK, we're doing the right thing. What it comes to climate change, right? But no, they want to get rid of the $4,000 in credits for used vehicles, right? Use elect, uh, electric vehicles and phase out some of the kind of uh, $7,500 credits for new, for new electric vehicles, right? So they want to get rid of that. Why? Because they want to keep burning fossil fuels because the oil companies want them to keep burning fossil fuels, right? So, they, don't, they want to prevent the development of these aspects of our economy, right, towards producing more electric vehicles. And again, there's a separate conversation to say. If you look at the original Build Back Better plan, right, the original Build Back Better, Better had a lot more money in there for public transport, public transport and kind of trains and things like this, which is where the money should be spending kind of dramatically. 
However, given where we're at, right, $7,500 credit for kind of new electric vehicles, right, um, and they have to be produced to a certain kind of you know, certain percentage within the United States, right, is an economic development program as well as a climate program. Right, because basically we've already seen the auto industry beginning to get on board with electric vehicles on their own, right? And now, what do they need? Oh, look, you, you give them a little incentive. Like basically say, like, no, we're going to give, uh, we're basically going to give cars a seven uh, seventy five hundred dollars subsidy, which will bring the the kind of sticker price down, so people are going to buy more of them. That's the classic recipe. This goes back to what Henry Ford knew, right? He said, you look, you want to produce a car, you got to produce a car that the people who are working there can buy. Right. Right now, electric vehicles are still are are still expensive. Right. But if you get that price down and you're producing it in America, you're producing say now there's more people being employed at good paying jobs. And the people who look on the consumer end of stuff, they can actually buy something that's going to help with the climate. Right. And again, putting all, like, everything in brackets here, like because we know that that's not sufficient. You know, we know that electric vehicles, the money is better spent if you're public transportation. All that is true, but that's not where we're at. We don't have like, they're not trying to cut those money because they already got rid of that money. But right now they're going after what's left. So that's, that's absolutely kind of critical. That's absolutely critical. <clears throat> yeah, Kirsten, go ahead. Uh, lift what you want. Uh, Kirsten's saying, sorry to be off topic, but, but wanted to lift this. Um, we'll kind of, when she puts that in, I'll let you know what it is. Um, yeah, so the, I mean, that, that's, that's some big deals, but then look at the attacks, like look at where the, the kind of the bulk of the attacks come, right? The main things that they, what they want to do, just listen to this. This is from, this is blew my, this is not, doesn't blow my mind. It just reminds me of who these people are, right? They've showed us who they are, right? So one thing they want to basically have, let me see, get the number. Uh, they want to basically have $130 billion in spending cuts, Right. How do they want to do that? They basically say that we have to pin federal spending back to 2022. We have to roll back kind of the spending and cuts, right? Which means, right, the spending reductions would probably target federal health care, science, education, climate, energy, labor, and research programs, while leaving untouched the Pentagon and services for veterans. But the bill does not specify the exact agencies or programs for the chopping block. Right, leaving the task to lawmakers on Congressional Appropriations Committee who craft the spending bills to keep the government running to stave off the shutdown. Right? So th they wanted their cake and eat it too, right? They basically want to say we're going to pass these huge, these huge cuts. At the same time, they're not going to say, look, we're not going to tell you what to cut, right? Because we don't want to be held responsible for kind of cutting Medicare, for cutting Social Security, for cutting education, for cutting climate stuff, for cutting, you know, um, uh, uh, say research into vaccines or whatever it might be, right? But so they want to do it. So it's going to come out of social programs, right? Because that's the area where that's been contested, right? That's the area that we have decided as society that we can kind of play with people's lives there and those public spending, that we don't see that as a priority and a necessity. And by we, of course, I mean the freaking people that are sitting in, a, in kind of like in our Congress. So that, so now, and then, and then not only do they want that, not only do they want to roll back to 2022, but they also have a, I want a cap on any growth in federal agencies' um, future budget at 1%. So there could be no more than 1% budget. So if inflation is at 2% or 3% and 4%, right, they want to cap it at 1%, which means basically organize systemic cuts for the foreseeable future. Right? That's what they're arguing for here. 
And here you go. Who else is being attacked? Of course, the poor. Because they're the ones, right? They're the ones causing all the problems. They want to put in new work requirements for welfare. But here, look how disgusting this is. Millions of low-income Americans who receive food stamps and health insurance from the federal government would have to work longer hours in exchange for benefits under the new GOP bill. First, the bill targets the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. It would subject adults without children to new work requirements until they reach age 56, replacing current law, which only imposes those rules until 49. So if you want to eat, you got to work longer. Right? We're not going to do anything to mandate a living wage, right, in terms of a kind of what employers have to pay, right? And matter of fact, we saw new law being passed, passed in Arkansas, and now there's another one in Iowa, which are opening up kind of rolling back child labor laws, allowing for kids as young as 14, but they're not even required to show papers. So you don't even know if they're actually 14, but to work in meatpacking factories, Slaughterhouses, other kinds of factories. I'm. This is we're rolling, literally rolling back the 20th century. Step by step by step by step. Rick Rick Smith has been saying this for God at least a decade. That's what the plan is, right? Read Jane Meyer's uh, book on dark money, and you'll talk to. This goes back to those super uber rich folks, right? who were so pissed off by FDR and the New Deal because it put restrictions on their ability to kind of accumulate, like accumulate massive amounts of profit and exploit whoever the hell they wanted. And they wanted to be able to do whatever the hell they wanted to be able to do. So, I mean, that's it. So they're going after the poor. They're going after climate provisions, right? Which we desperately have to have if we're going to have some sort of livable future. Here's Medicaid, right? And Medicaid, meanwhile, Republicans propose a rule requiring low-income recipients of federal health insurance to satisfy certain income or work thresholds. That includes, for example, participating in 80 hours per month in employment or community service. Otherwise, states would remove those enrollees from the safety net program, right? What about folks who can't work that time? What about folks who, I I mean, are you kidding me? So that means you have to work at least 20 hours a week. What if you're sick? I I don't know. The Center for Budget and Policy Priorities predicted that more than 10 million people could be kicked out of the program for Medicaid amounting to one in four, or I'm sorry, SNAP, I'm sorry, my bad, a one in four, uh, well, it goes right across the board, one in four current SNAP beneficiaries, so 25% of SNAP beneficiaries who are getting help to help them feed themselves so they don't go hungry would lose benefits. In the case of Medicaid, GOP-led states would introduce similar work mandates in the past, only see enrollment fall, right? So there you go. If you can't enroll, if you can't meet those work requirements, then you're going to lose your benefits so you don't enroll anymore. And the state goes, oh, look at that. We're balancing our budget off the backs of the poor. And it goes on. But that's, I mean, this is, you know, this is the perfect example. I I love the other one, too, is the only one I'll I'll mention is that they want to cut funds for, uh, they want to cut funds for uh, reforming the IRS. 
right? This is this is like one of these most insidious little little moves, right? Because the IRS is, you know, look, the IRS is a huge bureaucracy. Um, there's some things that they, well, there's quite a few things that they, they, they you know, there are frustrating. There's, you know, um, that doesn't work as well as it could and so on, right? So it's okay, we're going to modernize this. We're going to kind of work to making sure that we have people, enough people to cover this stuff to make that process simpler, right? Because the Republicans know, right? Let's Democrats know too as well. But Republicans know, right, if the IRS works poorly and is frustrating, guess what? People are going to hate taxes more. Right. If you can't, if you don't have a good experience, you have a good customer service experience with the IRS, right? You're going to get frustrated and you're going to hate the government that much more. And therefore that feeds into the uh, GOP agenda, right? That's the classic, the, the classic move um, of, you know, uh, human created shock doctrine. Naomi Klein would always write. Right. <clears throat> Uh, Kirsten, I think I'm, I'm missing part of a post, right? I said, I said, and we want him to return it and not charity wash it. Um, for some reason, I think, um, like one of you, the first part of your comment did not make it into the chat for some reason. If you want to put that back in or I have a link to something that you want me to show me, I'll let me know and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of boost it up. <clears throat> um, now, the other big big thing that happened this week in ways that were just, I found just devastating, especially as the way, you know, this happened like boom, boom, boom. I, I shouldn't, I say boom, 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 but I mean, what? Um, <clears throat> Kirsten, where did you send it to? Sure, I'm sorry. I'm getting. I'm. I'm trying to do too many things at once. Um, <clears throat> so I, we just, you know, we saw, you know, Ralph Yarl, uh, a 16 year old African American kid. Um, he was going to. Um, yeah, I don't know why Kirsten is not showing up. If you can message me on Twitter or send it to my email, that'd be great, and I'll kind of read it there. I'm not sure why it's not showing up here. <clears throat> um. Ralph Yarl, 16-year-old African-American kid, uh, going to pick up his sister, right? Went to the wrong address, knocked on the door, and to a simple mistake like that led to him nearly getting killed. And it, more has come out, like, since then. Um, you know, the guy who... Uh, guy who shot him, Andrew Lester, he's an 84-year-old, um, he, uh, his grandson has been speaking out and basically saying that, um, yeah, Lester, uh, his grandfather, um, went down the uh, right-wing media rabbit hole and became increasingly, you know, more extreme, more paranoid, more fearful, more racist, um, and he would have Fox News on all the day, like all day long, uh, you know, and he used to have a kind of relationship with his grandfather and it was becoming, it would be very difficult to do because of his paranoia. The guy had everything wired up. He had security cameras all over his house, right? So he had these security cameras and things like this. So not only did, 
you know, did uh, Ralph Yarl, right? Not even knocking the wrong door, but the guy actually saw him coming, right, on his security cameras, right? So he knew exactly that this is a 16-year-old kid, even though he said in court he was afraid, you know, or first statements, I'm sorry, were so like, oh, I was afraid he was like this six-foot you know, like six foot three, like, you know, uh, black guy coming to me. <coughs> Ralph Yarl's like five foot eight and skinny, right? But it shows you the distortion, right? It shows you the distortion and the fear that is, and the hate that is being um, um, perpetrated um, and perpetuated on Fox News, um, OAN, and these other right-wing media networks. Um, and, you know, this is only kind of consistent. You know, they're only going to kind of continue. Um, then we saw Kaylin Gillis, right, a 20-year-old white woman, right? Uh, she was looking for a friend's house. And if you see you see any of the pictures that they had of, like, the area where this took place, it was a kind of a, it was a rural area, right? And they talked about this guy's property. Um, they talked about this guy's property, and it basically said he's got a kind of like a wide end to his driveway. It goes up this kind of, you know, uh, kind of dirt and crushed stone kind of driveway. And some of the neighbors said, yeah, there's other people who have actually thought that was a road in the past because, you know, you can't really see the house. So you have this, you know, this girl, like, I think she's with her boyfriend, if I, if I remember correctly. She's goes up the, uh, you know, goes up the driveway. She's looking for a friend's house. It's in the dark. I said this rural area. If you've ever been in, like, rural areas, right, in the dark on these, these kind of roads, you know, it's hard to figure out where the addresses are sometimes, right? So she's looking to see if, it, oh, no, realize, nope, that's not the right one. Starts to turn around, and this guy from the deck, from his porch, starts shooting at the car. Kills her. And then Elgin, Texas, right? You saw this story, too, I'm sure. Two competitive cheerleaders, Heather Roth and Peyton Washington, Right, they're coming home from this long kind of competition, and there's like they were use this one parking lot for carpooling where they did practices and stuff, and apparently we're kind of getting out of one car. She thought she was getting into her car or her friend's car, whatever it might be. Right, goes there, realizes her mistake. She's like, "Oh, I'm sorry." Jumps back out, gets back in the other car. The guy whose car she got mistakenly got into gets out with a gun and starts shooting at them. Luckily, no one was killed in this one. Although Peyton Washington, right, she was she's in the hospital in critical condition. I mean, this is just like, you know, there is no, there is no, like, other, other conclusion than, you know, if you take, I was listening, let me put it this way. I was listening to um, um, Chris Hayes' show, um, uh, last night I was walking my dog. I was listening to kind of on the podcast version of it or whatever. And um, I, I wish I could remember the guy's name. Um, I wasn't thinking about talking about this this guy today, so I wasn't I didn't write it down. Anyways, but um, his interview and it you know it really captured what he was saying. Really captured for me what's what the issue is. You know, it's like we're we're in this middle of this massive experiment. I mean, there's multiple different kinds of experiments. Right, um, that are that are, <laughs> um, whatever. I that that this 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 country is doing that have just never been done before. I mean, you think about what we did with COVID. Uh, whatever, you know, we got the means, we've got the knowledge, we've got the ability, but we're just gonna kind of like whatever the hell let people die. Let's see what happens, <laughs> right? It's horrific, absolutely horrific, 
absolutely horrific, People right? Remember. I'm um, sorry about that. Um, I was just trying to see if they have the. No, they don't have his. Uh, thing. But anyways, we say you know the best things. You basically we don't have any kind of. Um, oh, Jamal Bowie, I think is it was is who who it was. Uh, as a commentator, Washington Post maybe. Um, but yeah, it was him. Jamal Bowie was on, and he said, you know, look. The experiment is like what what do you what do you do when you just start massively arming a population? You massively arm the population, and then you tell a population that their their neighbors are their enemies, that that people are coming to get them. In most cases, it's black people are coming to get you, is, is how the right wing media goes. Right? You've basically effectively kind of cornered part of the market where you can keep people inside that media bubble. So that all they think about is like, like crime is going like insane and that everybody is coming to your house to kind of kill you and rob, rob you. So you need to arm up again and you need to protect yourself against the other people who have the guns too as well. Right. So you just massively like dump guns into the society and you build distrust between people in that society. I mean, the logical conclusion of that story is that people are going to kill more of each other. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how else that story ends. Right. You know, and I was just thinking about that. It's like, yeah, it really is. It's like, you know, you follow out particular tendencies and this is, you know, I've said this on the show before too. Some of the best science fiction or speculative fiction works with that idea, right? You take, you take a scenario and something that's, you know, in existence now, a problem, a contradiction, um, something that is troubling, and you extend that logic out into the future, right? And to, you know, kind of like blow it up a little bit so you can see it to, as an order, a way of reflecting back upon the present. And it, this is kind of what we're in the process of doing. I mean, I can't foresee a, a the end of the story or another storyline other than people like people shooting more of other people. I mean, guns are designed to kill, to kill, right? I mean, you could tell me that you can tell me all you want. Like, well, no, it's not, it's not to kill, it's to defend. Well, it's defend in what way, right? I mean, the purpose, right? It's manufactured with a purpose, right? If it was just for defense, it would be a shield, right? Or some armor, right? That's, you know, defense, right? No, it's, an, it's, it's designed to kill people or kill people, animals, whatever you're talking about, right? That's the purpose of it. So if you use it as it's intended to be used, then people die. And then if you put in a layer on top of that, which is basically saying, and we're seeing these laws being passed in state after state after state, right? We saw the stand your ground laws, right? Um, that were, you know, that have been, that have been passed to basically give people the right to basically saying, you know, we're take that castle doctrine, right? You have the right to defend yourself inside your castle. And we're going to say, Oh no, your castle is, is you. So you as the individual of the castle. So anywhere that you go, if you feel threatened, you have the right to kind of shoot and kill people, defend yourself. And all you need, you don't even need a real threat. You just need a perceived threat. And we see cases, people are being, yeah, oh, yeah, well, he was afraid. He was afraid, therefore, it's okay. Sucks for the dead person, but, I mean, this is like, what world is this, you know? 
what world is this? So that's where we go. That's where we go. Anyways, we can take a quick break. We're going to come back. I'm going to check the DM for uh, stuff that Kirsten sent me, and I want to talk a lot of some stuff happened in PA, um, and then maybe some fun stuff to close it out. All right, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. We're going to be right back after this quick break. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1920. That was the day remembered in Butte, Montana as Bloody Wednesday or the Anaconda Road Massacre. Butte was in the heart of copper mining country. By the turn of the century, Butte's population was 25% Irish. The copper king of Montana was a man named Marcus Daly. He sat at the head of the Anaconda Mining Company. Workers simply called it the company. Hailing himself from Ireland, the county caven, the copper king was known to prefer Irish workers. With the spread of electricity, copper wiring was in high demand. Then World War I grew demand even further, and the company was in the business of delivering that copper with little regard for workers' safety. This disregard resulted in tragedy. A fire in June of 1917 killed 168 workers at the Granite Copper Mine. Miners went out on strike demanding better safety. The company called in federal troops to return the workers to the mine. The industrial workers of the world arrived in Butte to help organize the miners. Unionization efforts were met with armed resistance from the company. Frank Little, an IWW organizer, was hanged from a railroad trestle. No one was held accountable. Finally, on April 19th, the workers had had enough. They went out on strike. Two days later, hundreds of miners gathered in front of the Neversweet Mine on Anaconda Road. They were met by Pinkerton detectives hired by the company. The company gun thugs fired into the crowd of workers, shooting many in the back as they tried to flee. 16 workers were wounded and one man died. The strike collapsed a few weeks later. Today's Labor History in Two brought to you in memory of Carol Hillman, a passionate friend of workers and volunteer of the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. My bad. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> I was coming back. I was too preoccupied with the uh, uh, with the the DM from uh, Kirsten. Uh, just saying that. Uh, yeah, I don't understand why uh, your comments were not showing up on my screen because it looks like it was showing up on your screen in the chat. I that's bizarre to me that and I can't. I don't know that has happened before. So who the heck knows? Uh, but this is what Kirsten had sent out. Okay, so. Um, this, let's see, Democratic Jewish Outreach of PA calls for Brian Fitzpatrick to return $27,806 he received from Nazi artifacts collector Harlan Crow. And Indivisible Bucks is backing that call, right? Um, and we want him to return it and not charity wash it. And as ID Fitzpatrick, uh, as is Fitzpatrick's habit with dirty donations. It's what he did with Elliot Brody's money, um, Steve Wynn money, and Giuliani's Russian pals money. Right. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. So if, you know, if people have found that, um, if people have seen that, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, call on it 100 percent. Make sure that this guy uh, um, that kind of returns it, uh, rejects it and not just kind of like, oh, OK, we're just going to donate it to charity. 
right? This is uh, should be an, and a should be you know a complete um, you know disavowal of any kind of uh, like alliance or or that of that you know really publicly for that. So see, absolutely, thank you for that, Kirsten. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, so I'll say a couple things here. Uh, as we've seen in uh, Rutgers University had its first ever strike, uh, faculty strike and, and graduate worker strike. Um, and that's the first one in Rutgers 257 year history. Um, so it's a pretty big deal. If you recall in 2016, ABSCUF, which are, represents the faculty members of the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education, um, went on our first uh, ever strike, um, but we had only been around since, uh, you know, 1983 as, a, as an entire system. So this is a big deal at Rutgers. Um, and it was also a big deal because there were several unions, um, several locals basically that were on strike together. So you had graduate student unions, you had the, the adjunct faculty, you had um, the, the, the union represented the, um, our, uh, the biomedical health um, center, the workers there. Right. So this is a big deal. Right. So they all were on strike kind of in support of each other. Right. The whole idea is like one faculty. Right. That's the idea. Right. This is like solidarity is where you have like we all go together and we stay until everyone's got what they need. Right. That's what you want. Well, this past week, they, they just came to this like new framework deal. Right. Um, and they agreed to. Um you know, cut the, uh, or, or suspend the strike, or they didn't call off the strike. They didn't say the strike is over, right? Basically what they did is they said, okay, um, we are going to, um, we're going to suspend the strike because you're giving us, we're going to do a good faith thing here, right? That's basically what it is. We're going to do a good faith thing. What's the good faith thing? The good faith thing is we're going to say that, okay, it sounds like this is an agreement that we can get behind. Um, the details are not worked out yet. But we're in a good faith, kind of a show of good faith. What we're going to do is we're going to say, all right, we'll take the framework. We all agree on what that framework should be, right? And then we'll work out the details afterwards. And meanwhile, we'll get back to the classrooms and students can get back to their classes to make sure that you're not disrupting education or the graduation, things like this. Great, excellent. But that depends upon there being real action and real trust, right? I mean, so if you're going to have a framework deal, Right. That means that, you know, there has to you have to work out the details. And so that, you know, as they always say, right, this is the cliche that it never gets old. Right. That the devil is always in the details. Well, and here, you know, it looks like what the part of the uh, part of the devil in the details here is delay. <laughs> right. Um, so there was a um, there was a report in Politico uh, that came out yesterday, I believe. Yep, yesterday, and I'll just kind of read you the opening stuff here. It says, Rutgers University faculty unions are expressing frustration with the pace of finalizing contract negotiations with the university, with a possible strike resumption looming. Rutgers resumed classes on Monday after historic faculty strike, which included 9,000 workers and three unions, impacting Rutgers' approximately 67,000 students. Faculty unions and Rutgers officials negotiated in the State House for five days after Governor Phil Murphy um, kind of intervened, right? Um, it says, but while both sides reach a framework deal, unions have described the Rutgers University administration as being slow moving on finishing it since um, negotiations resumed in New Brunswick. Quote, we got to New Brunswick and it's been the same tricks, slow bargaining, not responding to critical demands, playing whatever foolish, stupid games they've been playing. Todd Wolfson, vice president of the Rutgers AAUP AFT said in an interview, 
quote, so yes, we are pissed off and we are asking ourselves what we need to do and what's going to, what's going to need to happen before the semester ends in order to get the contract that we need, right? Bravo, Todd Wolfson, for not pulling punches on this. Now, with strike suspended, I'm not permanently over it, union leaders are discussing going back to the picket line. Amy Heiger, president of Rutgers PTLFC, AAUPAFT, which represents part-time lecturers, and it is possible, saying possible strike may resume. All they said it was hard to gauge how likely it is, right? Quote, we're feeling, we're kind of feeling like the old intransigence is back now, and we're back in, and now that we're back in New Brunswick, she said in an interview. We could resume the strike. We could reserve that right. As workers and Rutgers, um, we didn't end the strike. We just suspended it, and it was conditional. Conditional upon that trust, right, that you were going to have it. Um, and, you know, I have to say, that trust was, you know, that was a lot to swallow to begin with, like given the fact that Rutgers, uh, the administration there, had done pretty much everything it's done to break trust um, with uh, with faculty and kind of academic workers at Rutgers. So, the, you know, there you have it. I mean, so we're at this point. And like, you know, the, the framework deal, and, you know, one of the things you can see, you look at some of the details in their framework deal. Um, let me see if I can pull this up. Sorry. I wanted to have, I thought I had this up. Yep. Um, the framework deal um, provided some really good and fairly substantial solid things for particular groups of faculty, right? This is a, you know, uh, but, but, you know, I, I don't want to say this is definitely the case, but it, you know, it has that taste of, okay, we're going to try divide and conquer now. What happens if we offer this group some stuff, but, you know, make one, another group of workers look like they're the problems, right? Um, but there were some historic gains, right? So, um, so for example, this is from NorthJersey.com. They said um, they, when they came to the framework agreement, there were union leaders who came out, right? Um, basically, Brian Sachs, that quote, is a leader of the union, represented the adjunct faculty. He called, say, it was a his, quote, historic compensation gains that are ready to go, uh, that are going to total nearly 44% in the life of the contract, unquote. The increase is about to almost 30% in the first year of Rutgers, quote, very low-paid part-time lecturers, unquote. Sachs said in an interview, right? So that's good, right? I mean, that's a that's a positive gain, right? But they also said, right, um, that from the adjunct union, because of the pressure of time, there was many outstanding issues that still needed to be resolved. And if we're not, and and if they're not, we could find ourselves back at the picket line, just as we were just talking about, right? Um, so what are some of those issues? Pay equity, like diversity demands and some other social justice demands that, that are kind of not hammered out, right? And it should be important to note that those were part of the demands that were integral to the strategy around organizing, right? About connecting with the community, about building like broad-based connections, of building solidarity in a very real way, right? Not basically saying, we're just going to look at compensation for particular groups of people. We're going to forget about all these other demands. No, we so said, we're going to deal with all this stuff. Right. And because of that labor coalition, right, I'll read again another part for this. Becky Given, a president of the union representing full time Rutgers faculty, the AAUP slash AFT, they said the labor coalition had achieved, quote, unprecedented gains for contingent workers, graduate students in our communities. Right. That was a big thing. Right. Adjuncts are also going to see um, kind of significant improved in the job uh, on their job security provisions. Right. What's the details? Right. Some of the problems. Right. Um, is that the details of what was going to go to graduate student workers, right? Um, about how many years were they going to be, you know, be able to get that fifth year of guaranteed funding, right? Um, 
or PhD? Were they going to um, have to teach additional classes to get that compensation? Right, um, union saying no, the administration, that's what they wanted, but those details are not worked out. So you got graduate student workers who are just kind of like, I don't know about this, right? And you know, look, there has been a long history, right? And especially in faculty unions of tenure track faculty selling out either adjuncts or graduate student workers, right? For their own benefit. Now that has changed dramatically right in the 21st century, right? We have started, I mean, it didn't happen all at once, but where we are now, right? And this was true during uh, Abscuff strike in 2016. And it's even, I think more true in the Rutgers and uh, the Rutgers strike, right? Is that the recognition that no, 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 no. We know this divide and conquer strategy, right? We know that if we sell out that group, right? It's you know, it's ultimately gonna come for us. Right. So even at the level of self-interest, <laughs> right, right, even at the level of self-interest, those tenured faculty know uh, kind of like what the game is. Right. And it's true. If you know, if you don't protect the, the most vulnerable among your community. Right. Not only are, are you have a moral problem. Right. But you're also you're ultimately cutting out your own legs. Right especially when you're talking about from the perspective of workers, that is how you survive as a community and a strong community, right? You just don't basically, you know, throw like members of your family, so to speak, to the wolves so that you get to eat that night, <laughs> right? I mean, come on. So this is amazing. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. There's so much that I think we're, we're, gonna, we're, we're learning and going to continue to learn about this Rutgers strike. Um, frankly, I've reached out to some folks and continue, going to come back at that too, see if I can get some folks from Rutgers to come on, um, come on the show. I'm really hoping to see that. That'd be absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah. Uh, just so you know, for folks in, um, for folks listening, if there's anything that you are posting to comments and you're not seeing me respond to, uh, shoot me, uh, DM me on Twitter, uh, let me know, because I, I, after what Kirsten says, I'm a little bit paranoid that there's something going on there. Anyways, here's some good news on the, uh, on the guns uh, uh, front. This happened in Lower Marion Township. Um there was a store that basically opened up, uh, uh, a gun store, um, opened up in a section uh, like that was kind of close to um, schools, right? So there was a a company called Shot Tech, right? Um, that this happened last year. They opened up a fire nine, or a, a gun shop um, close to this one of the commissioner's homes in Ballasinwood but it was also near several schools, right? Including um, uh, Sinwood Elementary School and Ballas Sinwood Middle School. And so residents started a petition requesting the township to close the business, which, and it gathered more than 3,000 signatures. And this, you know, we find that this just happened. The, um, the uh, Board of Commissioners passed an ordinance that basically said, okay, we're gonna shut it down. Right, basically, or say we're going to prevent this. Right, we're basically saying that no, you cannot operate um, in a residential district. You cannot operate out of your personal home. Right, if you're selling guns, you cannot operate within a thousand feet of of a school. Right, and it has to be within this commercial district. Right, there you go. And you know, I think the commissioners were, you know, they understand what's up. Right, so they said, look, we're going to do, we're going to take a step in a direction. Right. This is not as far as we'd like to go or as we think we should go. This is what we think we could do right now. So we're going to do it. 
right? And it doesn't mean it's over. Doesn't mean we're going to stop, um, you know, kind of looking for ways to kind of curtail gun violence and just kind of curtail just like flooding our streets with weapons. No, we're going to, but we're going to take a step in that direction. And this is a big deal. Now, I would be surprised if we don't see some lawsuits start coming out of this, right? So, um, so pay attention, right? Because this is going to be like, again, this is about does a community have the right to keep itself safe? Does the community have a right to kind of regulate, right? Um, you know, uh, kind of this, this kind of violence, right? And of course, the NRA and the gun lobby is going to say absolutely no because we want to sell more weapons, and the only way to do that is to make sure that we flood our streets and make it as easy as possible for people to get their hands on them. Why can't your neighbor kind of be selling AR-15s out of their garage? So there you have it. So kudos to the folks uh, at Laura, uh, Laura Marion um, for passing that. And um, my hope is that we're going to see this happening in additional districts. I remember when I used to, uh, I used to live in Allentown, right? And um, I, I was so, this just blew my mind at the time. Um, there was, uh, it was a, uh, Ed, Ed um, uh, Polovsky, right, was, was the mayor at that time. And there was this, there was this incident, right, where basically somebody had set up in their backyard, right, and this is, you know, this is the section of Allentown, right, just kind of like, that wasn't near where I lived, but, you know, it was kind of like, same thing, lots of row houses, right, we're talking about row houses, we're not talking about like, big open expanse, we're talking about row houses, right, so somebody in a row house, like in their little kind of little backyard, had set up a shooting range, right, and Justifiably so, neighbors and people are like, what the hell you think you're doing? You can't be shooting off, like, guns like this as a shooting range, right? And so, the I can't remember how far it got, but the, the city council basically banned you having a shooting range inside, you know, the, the city limits. No, <laughs> you can't do that in your backyard, right? Why? Well, there's kids, there's people, right? All you need is one little, little ricochet and you could kill your neighbor, right? I mean, it was as simple as that, right? And it passed like, you know, people are like, yep, absolutely. But then guess what happened? Republicans and the NRA threatened to sue the city, right? And they said that we are going to sue you. You cannot ban, you cannot do that with, you know, um, because it's a violation of the second amendment, which again, hadn't been tested. But what happened? Did Allentown fight that? Nope. They were so worried that they were going to be taken to court and they're going to have to fight a lawsuit. They're going to have to spend money that they got rid of the ordinance. Freaking nuts, right? And that's been the pressure so far, right? The NRA has basically done this. The, the, the gun lobby has done this. Republicans have done this as a way of kind of pressuring communities into making themselves less safe. So that those industries, right, those businesses who make a product that is designed to kill get to make more money. That's where you go. It's the same logic. That's why, that's why the gun lobby is terrified of what happened in the tobacco suit, right? Because they know, like, look, a cigarette... If it's used as is designed to be, 
will give you cancer. It's not like a, a fluke if you use it in a way that it's not supposed to. No, if you use it as it's designed for its purpose, it will give you health problems and cancer. And when you know that, and you then lie about it, or you try a little PR move to try to direct people's attention away from the fact that it kills you, right? In the end, what they did with the tobacco industry, they finally held them accountable and said, no, you are going to pay for your lies. Right now, we didn't ban cigarettes entirely. Right, there's a lot more restrictions on what they could do. We got it, you know, all this other kind of stuff. You cannot push it to kids. You cannot do all this other kinds of things, right? You have to have labels that say this is the, you know, there has to be a certain age. You have to go, all that kind of stuff. With guns, right? It's not a slow death like cancer, right? It's immediate. Boom, you're done. And then you couple that, you know, you can say this thing about Fox News, right? Right wing media. If you use that media the way it's designed to be used, you become a racist, <laughs> right? And if you then, you know, and at the same time, the same people that are encourage you to be hateful and become racist or hate LGBTQ people, the same people are telling you that you need to get a gun to protect yourself from these people, <laughs> right? You're using it as designed. You should be held accountable. Those people should be held accountable. So not so that, and, and the, the worst part about it is it's so much, it's for such, it's for Freaking money. Yeah, there's people that are kind of ideological, ideologically aligned with those extreme positions. But when it comes down to it, most of it is about money. We're willing to sacrifice our kids for money. Make our communities more unsafe. So these companies, not even money for everybody, so that those people, that small group of people get to kind of extract more money from us while we shoot each other. It's just freaking nuts. But yeah, so kudos to the folks in Laura Marion Township for, for pulling this off. Uh, I know that the struggle is going to continue. There's going to be fights kind of moving forward, but uh, holy moly, holy moly, here we go. Um, so I, I know that there was a lot of stuff that happened at the uh, Central Bucks School Board last night. Um, if you... Um, Uh, hold on. I'm sorry. I just wanted to, uh, um, that, um, the ACLU has been putting out a bunch of stuff on this and um, they were just like livid at to hear what the, uh, the Central Park School Board's um, hired kind of religious fundamentalist lawyers um, try to pull off as an investigation about their uh, discriminatory acts. Um, uh, we, and I, I, I look forward, I'm going to talk about more about this next week. Um, I, I've, been, I, I've been playing around with trying to get I'd like to have somebody come on and talk specifically what's happening on Central Bucks. And I might even do something where um, on Monday we might even have like a double show. So we're having Francois Furstenberg on. We're doing that special one o'clock time um, for the um, 
uh, for his show. Um, and then maybe we get something on to talk about what's happening on Central Bucks. If not, maybe on the first, we're, we're going to see. But I think we that's it's time we got to dig in what's happening with that law case. So much has happened, you know, and like, look, I mean, parents are organizing, communities are organizing to try to kind of beat this stuff back. Um, and it's just, it's overwhelming what they're, how they're, how that school board is seeking to transform that school district. I mean, thank God you have at least two people on that school board um, that are um, two to three people on that school board um, that, uh, you know, whatever. I don't want to say are sane because then it's not just sane, but that, that are kind of not committed to destroying um, public school, uh, public schools. So and that's true right now. So hopefully um, that some of these lawsuits are actually going to have effect in some of these people who have been funding this, uh, this, this hate and extremism in the schools are going to be held accountable um, for their actions. So we shall see. Um, you know, I was thinking I had a whole bunch of stuff that I wanted to, uh, that I was thinking about talking about, but I just, I think it's going to be too much for the day. <laughs> so, um, so we shall see. A couple of things that happened, I'm going to say um, on the side, one, on, I don't know if you saw about this, but a Wednesday night, uh, there was a, uh, a satellite that stopped functioning um, that for a while, and it was about 660-pound satellite came crashing down to Earth. Um, NASA was not sharing its information about where it was going to come crashing down. Right. Um, which is, I guess, like, OK, I could see you don't want people rushing out to that site to try to kind of be there for it and have it come down on it. But at the same time, don't people need to know? Right. Um, but it crashed down at the border of Sudan and Egypt um, and here. And, you know, it's like the more, you know, I think we're, we're just getting to that that point in time when there's been some satellites who have been in orbit for quite some time. Uh, Gravity is going to win that battle especially, you know, ones who are no longer functioning properly, you can no longer adjust them or anything like this. They're just going to come back to earth, especially ones that are that big that are not going to burn up in the atmosphere. So we'll see more of that. Um, and, uh, you know, in the uh, move fast, break things world, uh, the Silicon Valley elite, like Elon Musk, uh, we saw what SpaceX did. Yeah. Another one of its uh, like famous ways of testing things was to just blow stuff up. Um, so SpaceX first test flight, its massive Starship rocket um, exploded a few minutes after its launch. Um, now, you remember a couple of years ago, they were testing just the base of the Starship, right? So or I shouldn't say the base. They were testing just the um, the, the 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 flight part of the top of the it's like actually the top of the rocket, the one that actually the people go into. Right. They were testing that. And there was a series of explosions when they were trying to get it to come down and land. And the thing blew up. Um they blew up, you know, blew up several times. Like, who knows how many, like, billions of dollars have been spent on this. Um, I think just, you know, th like, NASA had spent $3 billion just for this one one So, um, but anyways, so this one was the full stack, right? So you had these, this massive rocket, like the um, most powerful rocket that's ever been built, um, was underneath the, the Starship module. And, um, you know, the idea is that this, unlike what we see, what we just saw with the... Um, the Orion um, program, which we saw the ULA um, um, rocket go up, that was that previously was the, the most powerful one ever built. Um, that one was successful, of course, that we saw that we you know is going to do the next uh, the lunar landing, the next lunar landing coming up. But anyways, that one um, that one went up, and this was going to be the SpaceX rocket was going to be um, even more powerful, right? And so this goes up, and because the ULA stuff is not reusable, SpaceX builds reusable stuff. So if you're going to do space exploration, this is a way 
a better way to do it ultimately because you're not just kind of wasting all that, spending it and wasting it, you're using some of the parts as we've seen. Um, so this was the first kind of full stack and then uh, it made it up, you know, after about a minute and a half or so, it seems like something was, it seems like it stopped, was it kind of moving in the right way? At one point it seemed to start turning and right. And then it went into like a sp slow spiral, right? And then at one point it was actually headed down like towards earth, right? With the rocket still going, but then it kind of like adjusted and turned around and it kept on going in these circles, right? Um, so clearly um, they weren't able to get separation between those two. Some of the uh, rockets, um, the engines uh, kind of uh, cut off and they ultimately had, I, I believe they, they, uh, um, uh, basically, f you know, flick the switch on the kind of uh, the destruct sequence so that, you know, the thing wouldn't come crashing down um, at full speed uh, and, and, you know, hurt people. So that was that. Another big boom for Elon. Um, there you have it. So anyways, I'm sorry I'm just kind of like fading here. To, I, I'm telling you, I've had quite a week. Um, and I find myself just, I'm, I mean, it's only like, a, what, 1130 and I'm kind of fading. And my I don't know about you, but my allergies have been absolutely horrible this week. And I can start feeling it now. Like my eyes are starting to water again. My headache is coming back. Um, and I'm in my basement. So, you know, there you go. Anyways, I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Um, and want to remind you that on Monday, uh, we'll be talking to Francois Furstenberg. Um, we're going to be talking about his, uh, his awesome article um, called, sorry, Higher Ed's Grim, Solace, Ed Techified Future. Um, and that is uh, the basically the article. It, it's also timely because of the Temple University strike. Um, and Jason Wingard, who was the university president there, less than two years, um, there was a vote of no confidence coming out against him because he had all these new fancy ideas, right? Sounds like this chancellor of the state system of higher education, right? Yeah, exactly. But anyways, he had all these fancy ideas. We championed this thing called skillification in terms of transforming higher education. Uh, well, you know, he uh, used anti-labor union practices against uh, graduate students who were on strike. Um, he did all sorts of things that really pissed off the faculty. They were coming forth with a vote of no confidence. And eventually he just kind of resigned. He was, he checked out. So uh, what this, what this piece does, what Francois Furstenberg does is basically looks at um, uh, Jason Wingard's book um, where he champions stuff on skillification and paints out this picture, this agenda for higher ed. And his argument ultimately is like, look, this is really, this is good to understand. See what he's doing in this book. Not because Jason Wingard, right? Yes, he's gone from Temple. But the agenda that he articulates in this book is precisely the agenda that we're seeing in places like the state system of higher education through uh, Dan Greenstein. And we're seeing in other places kind of across the country in higher education that's seeking to basically replace people with these kind of like apps and kind of techni solutions and things like this. So we're going to get into that on Monday. That's Monday at 1 p.m. Special time at 1 p.m. Of course, after that, it will be posted for everybody to see. Um, uh, you can tune in live just like you would with our regular show at 7 p.m. Um, but as soon as we're done, it'll be up and available for if you can't make the 1 p.m. Um, and then again on Monday, uh, on May 8th at 7 p.m., I'm welcoming this guy to the show. Um, this is an uprising. Uh, that's Mark Engler. Um, his book, uh, This is an Uprising, uh, Nonviolent Revolt is Shaping 21st Century, something I actually use in some of my classes that um, we talk about that stuff. Uh, my class on activist writing media, um, we kind of we look at this as a way of kind of thinking what's happened with social movements. Um, he's also the editorial, he's on the editorial board of Dissent. But we're going to be talking about his latest article called Can Movements Keep Politicians from Inevitably Selling Out? 
Um, it's a really cool piece, right? It was just published in Descent, The Forge, and it's also on Waging Nonviolence. Um, and, and that piece is basically asking the question is like, well, how do we, um, how do we understand, first of all, a little bit about why, what happens to politicians, right? Um, even ones that seem to have good intentions, um, when they, you know, you get inside the DC circle and you get it subjected to a series of incentive structures, um, that uh, kind of move you in one direction or another, right? And so, you know, Mark Engler has been writing a lot about social movements and kind of like social movement strategy for quite some time. Uh, he and his brother, Paul Engler, um, kind of wrote that book, I should say, if you give Paul Engler credit to as well for this as an uprising. Um, and in this piece is basically looking at some of uh, um, uh, Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman's um, kind of framework um, that they put together in manufacturing consent when we're thinking about what happens in the media, see what is actually happening in internal politics. And then, right, not just kind of looking at analysis, but then say, well, this is where kind of social movements become really critical. And um, I think this is a really important conversation, especially as you have some segments of the quote unquote left, right? People like Jimmy Dore, who I it's just like have done so much damage, right? And just like because of his own craven interests. Um, but who just believe that, you know, the minute that someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez doesn't make every single vote they want or do, does what they say that then she's sold out, right? And so you have, you have that, those people who are always going to be, you know, it's going to be the cancelers that are just going to like, oh, if you're not perfect, then we're going we're gonna to call you a sellout and then we're gonna, now we're going to be against you. Right? So there's that group of folks. But then there's also kind of like, this is the first time, at least in my lifetime, where we've had actually a group of uh, representatives Right, you call them the, the expanded squad. Right, we had the squad. Right, and now we have the expanded squad. Kind of more people that were kind of elected in this last round of elections. We see a similar dynamic happening here in Pennsylvania. Right, we have these politicians who are now kind of in office, were elected, but came out like from kind of a movement base. And how do we think about kind of keeping that? You know, both supporting that kind of wedge that we've got in here, but also making sure that there's accountability. Right um, to the movements, right, um, and and vice versa. So th that's going to be, I think, a good conversation. We'll talk about him on May. That'll be on May eighth. Um, we're still looking for our guest for uh, for May first, International um, Kind of Workers Day. Um, but uh, we'll get back to you on that when we have it. But anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Want to remind you, you can help support this show by heading over to patreon.com slash RC press and you can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Um, check it out. And uh, let me just check on something real quick before I sign off because I'm getting a bunch of uh, beeps here. And I'm trying to see if this is uh... Nope. Okay, I just wanted to see if somebody was trying to get my attention if something was wrong with chat or something. Like that. <laughs> just, I didn't want to kind of like have leave someone out there holding something else. So all right, everybody, uh, have a good one. Um, look forward to a great discussion this coming Monday. Um, hope you're all kind of enjoying the weather, uh, at least where I'm at. It's pretty nice today. Got a little rain coming over the weekend, but, uh, you know, hey, it's all good. Uh, hopefully I'm going to get out and do some gardening if these allergies let up a little bit. So anyways, it's Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, see you all, everybody. Wish you a great weekend, and we'll see you on the flip side. See ya! In the future, where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call.